Oh my gosh! <laughs> I don't really think about it until the next oh, day, right? I know, I miss those days. Well, technically, like, you're not. It's just impossible. And you're like, I oh, okay. <laughs>
they struggled with acne and I feel like that's just such a common thing that young people deal with you know and I think the majority of us really isolate ourselves and think oh I'm the only person going through this right now but it's so so common so how did that like kind of take a toll on your confidence and do you feel like maybe what you were seeing out in the media or on TV was affecting how you saw yourself when you were struggling with your skin. Oh yeah. I mean, looking back, I remember, so I'm someone who likes to keep um, journals and diaries. I've been writing in a diary since I was in grade three and I was actually recent. I know. Right. And I'm so glad my mom and dad got me into this practice. Um, But I was looking back at one of my old journal entries from when I was in like grade six or seven recently. And I didn't even remember that this was how I felt, but I had drawn out a picture of what I thought I looked like in my eyes. And it was just like, you know, like it was a grotesque drawing. And I remember drawing like dots on my face um, and I had glasses back then. And that really affected my confidence too. And I drew myself with like really ugly clothes. And I was like, this is me now. And this is who I wish I was. And it was like this beautiful person that was like skinnier, obviously no like little pencil marks on her face. And I was looking back at this. And I was like, man, I wish I could go back and give this Connie a big hug right. and be like, first off, like, no one else is judging you the way that you are. Life is not just about looks and you just have no idea what's around the corner in store for you. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm so glad I journaled about it though, because I completely forgot um, how upset I was with the way that my skin looked. And looking back, I think, you know, I would shrink inwards when I was meeting someone because I would just assume that the first thing that they looked at was my skin. Yes. When in reality, like, you know, there's you're so much more than that. Um, and I know it's ironic or maybe even hypocritical as a skincare founder to say that, but it's true. Your confidence comes from so much more than just the way your skin looks. Um, so I also think I was affected by um, the media. Luckily, when I was growing up, um, social media wasn't really a big thing. I remember getting Instagram when I was going into university, I think. Um, so I remember the the extent of me comparing myself to others was in the off chance I would get a magazine. And my parents didn't let me really read magazines at the bookstores until I was like 16, 17, because they were like, it's not good for your confidence. And I'm so glad they did that. Um, But all I remember doing is I would compare myself to the models I would see in like 17 magazine and be like, oh my God, they're so skinny. They're so beautiful. Or Victoria's Secret models. And thinking like, ah, their body type is like so ideal. And it wasn't until years and years later and talking to a therapist and realizing like, hey, like, First off, like they don't even look like that because no. those, the images are photoshopped. <laughs> yeah. And second, like they're like starving themselves again uh, before the shows. But yeah, to answer your question, I think I was impacted by media, but definitely not to the extent that people today are. Right. No, that makes sense. I guess going off of that, yeah, no, I think it's really important that you were able to look back at that and not a lot of people can so it's really awesome to hear that you were able to keep that journal yeah it's like a little it's like a little time capsule (laughs) exactly no that's so cool and um I guess the next point I wanted to dive into was kind of you know that feeling of you know when you experience being in school you know studying business in school and just feeling that lack of like you need something more almost and that you have like a bigger purpose and I think a lot of young people especially in our generation feel that way because we're so used to seeing like the older generations just like go to school get a traditional job and then that's just it they have a good job and that's what they do every day day in day out but I think a lot of us now in this coming generation do struggle with that of feeling like is this it like is there not more to my purpose than just like getting a degree and going into a job so I think that's a really interesting point you bring up there so um, yeah and I also see it both ways too because I do agree like a lot of the younger generation um, is always asking themselves like what's my purpose what's my purpose and also a lot are talking about work-life balance and, and all that but another interesting take on it that I've heard recently is you know, for those who I feel like entrepreneurship is really glamorized and there's so much that goes on behind the scenes that most people aren't aware of. And if most people knew what actually happened, they might not start their own company. And I think another take on it is balance can also be working a nine to five that you're pretty good with, that pays you pretty well. And then you have all this time for you to pursue passions, to have hobbies, to raise a family if that's important to you, to have time for friends to work out like I think um, a lot of people 
say your like job has to be your passion. And I actually disagree. Uh, and again, I know it might be like, like a uh, hypocritical coming from someone who is a founder and I love what I do, Yeah. but I just want to make sure that people who are listening don't feel pressure to start something because that's not what this is about. Like as long as you're finding purpose and happiness in other areas in life, it doesn't mean that your career has to be that passion like a hundred percent of the time. Absolutely. I totally agree with that because as someone so, you know, who has a job that's more of that entrepreneurial, like work for themselves, like as a content creator. But at the same time, I also do work full time at a nine to five as a project right. engineer. So it's like I, I experience both things. And, you know, a lot of people come to me and say, wow, like content creating, that's so amazing. Like you just like work when you want to. And, you know, and obviously there's <laughs> so many perks to it. Right. And, you know, I do run my own business and stuff. But at the end of the day, it does sometimes take over your life. So I don't think there's like um a right or wrong way to do things or you know saying nine to fives are awful and always just go to be like self-employed but I think there's amazing things that come with both of them um the thing I love about my nine to five is at the end of the day I close my laptop and I don't really think about it until the next oh, day I right? know I miss those days my yeah. co-founder Laura and I are always saying like oh we'll be walking around outside maybe at 6 p.m going to a meeting we'll see everyone just like la-di-da going to get drinks yeah and we're like we miss that a lot. <laughs> yeah, it's totally different. So there's so many benefits that come with both, you know, things. It just really depends what you want to do. And I don't think that anyone who loves, you know, their nine to five schedule and having those free evenings and stuff should feel pressured to go into entrepreneurship. But it is also great to hear um, your perspective for those people who are in their nine to five. And they're like, I just wish I had something that was mine right. you know, or something like that. So that's really interesting. And I do want to deep dive into the next kind of thing you brought up here, which was the way you and Laura started Three Ships. You mentioned you started out of your apartment, $4,000 in savings. What was that like then? And was there any fear associated with starting a company or were you just more kind of taking it day by day? So when we started, we were both working our nine to fives. Um, so we both worked in sales. Okay. And I think that kind of reduced some of the fear because we had a stable job on the side. Mm -hmm. uh, and then so what our days looked like is we'd work our nine to fives. Then on Mondays and Wednesdays, we would meet up in the evenings to make our products in my kitchen or work on our site. And, you know, those beginning day things like I mean, we spent like a couple hours working on business cards. Like we had no idea what we were doing when yeah. we started. Um, and then on Saturdays and Sundays, we would go to the farmer's market to sell our products and like meet customers in person. And that's kind of how we started. Um, it was very bootstrapped. Like we'd make a, you know, a couple, like maybe 10 or 20 products at a time. And then slowly things started to pick up. Um, and then around a year and a half into the business is when we decide to quit and go full time. And oh, wow. when you ask about fear, like, yeah, I think there's always fear when you put your name behind something, like being a perfectionist, I, I was so scared of telling my friends and family that I was starting this because I was like, what are they going to say? They're going to judge me. If I post about it online, people are going to laugh at me. Mm -hmm. But then there was this bigger part of me that was like, no, you are so capable. And if you never try, you'll never know. And I think that voice beat out my like scaredy cat side of me. And I'm so glad that I decided to push through with it. Um, and I'm glad that we also did it scrappily because we only had $4,000 to work with. We had to be really intentional with where we were spending our money. Um, and right. I think that kind of forces you to be a really resourceful founder. And so I know a lot of the times we read in the media, like, oh, this company raised like 5 million to start their company mm -hmm. or like this, you know, this company has a hundred employees. And I think, again, that's really overly glamorized. And um, for your listeners, like even if you're working nine to five and you have a couple grand saved up, like you can absolutely do it even with no connections and no funding because we did it. Um, and then I think like along the way, you know, there was fear and then there still is fear and there was a lot of imposter syndrome and, right. uh, something that I feel like I really suffered with in the beginning was imposter syndrome because I was just this 23 year old that again, had no beauty connections or experience. Um, and I remember telling myself one day when you're a couple years into the business, you won't have imposter syndrome anymore mm -hmm. because you'll have owned like these problems and you'll know how to tackle them. But what I've realized now, almost like six, seven years later, is it doesn't fully go away because once you figure out how to solve one problem, there's a whole new set of challenges that you've never encountered before. Absolutely. And that's why it's so important to 
find other ways to like boost yourself back up and, and recognize how good you are. So one thing that I do a lot is journaling and it's not just journaling about like the hardships I'm going through, but it's also recognizing like, okay, what are three things that went pretty well today? And it could right. be something really small, as small as just like smiling at a stranger and holding a door open for them, or it could be something as big as landing whole foods, but it's like this track record that I keep for myself over the past few years of starting three ships that really helps me build my confidence. Um, so I know I've kind of like rambled a little there, but I'm just like really passionate about helping people understand that imposter syndrome is what you make of it. And it's about having these tools in the back of your pocket um, for those down days that you have as a founder, which inevitably happen almost every day. Absolutely. And I think imposter syndrome, honestly, is one of those things people don't get loud enough about because it's such a like uncomfortable feeling. And I think all of us, you know, feel it at one point, whether it's in our careers or at school or just even in relationships and family and friends of just that feeling of like, you don't know enough or you're not enough. It's a really weird feeling. And I've definitely felt that a ton, especially not only just in the beauty industry and being a content creator, because, you know, every in every room you're in, there's always someone with more followers than you, right? right? So you feel like, am I even supposed to be here, right? But especially, you know, working in like the engineering industry, especially as a woman in STEM, I get that so often because I'm like, I don't know what I'm doing here, right? Like these, some of these guys have been in this field for 40 plus years. But what I've learned so much is that like what you said there, even over time, no one kind of fully gets rid of that imposter syndrome. They might develop a bit more confidence and comfortability in their work, but there's still going to be holes where you're like, I don't really know that much about this or, you know, do I really feel qualified enough to do this work? But um, I think that's such a common feeling. And I love those points you brought up about journaling and reflecting back on that, because obviously with the theme of this podcast, it's all about like making you feel a bit more confident in yourself. And I think doing that reflection is really important. To yeah. Kind of set those goals yeah. for yourself. I'm a big, big believer in logging how you're feeling. And um, another thing that I do is uh, anytime I have a small win, I'll like save it in a folder on my laptop. Like even if it's something as small as a buyer sending me an email being like, like, uh, so for example, we just launched at Whole Foods and we put Whole Foods in our website homepage banner and I sent her a screenshot and she replied being like, this totally made my day. Like so grateful for your team and like how great our partnership's going. And I screenshotted that, put it in my folder because then when I'm having those down days, I just open my folder. It's called like my personal wins. And I just like go through. And it's also really cool to see what was like a big win for me back in the day and how to me today that's so like baseline because it forces you to have gratitude for the little moments that you're encountering in your day-to-day that you don't even think about anymore like back when we first started I would have died to have a team of 12 which is like our team right now um but to give you context right before we hopped on this podcast I was chatting with some of my other founder friends and we have this monthly call and they have like 200 employees in their company I remember thinking like oh my god they have 200 employees I only have 12 and so like it just never, the goalpost is always moving, which is Absolutely. why you ha- you need these things to stay grounded yeah. because you'll never feel happy if you, if you don't check in with yourself. 100%. And you know, when you say that, I hear so many people, especially like in this industry, right? It's like not only like social media, but also in business, right? It's like when I make this much money or when I have this much followers or when I get to this achievement, that's when I'll like let myself be happy. And you can't live that way because if you think about it, you know, when you were comparing yourself to someone who has maybe 200 employees, you got to remember someone maybe who has one employee or zero employees is looking at you and being like, wow, she has 12 employees, you know? So it's like (laughs) someone is always having you in mind as their goal, right? So it's like, you need to be proud of every single moment. I think it's very important to have goals and things you want to achieve, but also not to downplay the accomplishments you've made so far, because it can get, it can get tricky and it can definitely, you know, Oh my gosh, I know. Especially as a woman, I mean that's a whole other discussion. But yes. yeah, <laughs> that, that's a whole that's a whole another podcast episode there. Um, I guess back to starting the business there. You know, with those limited funds you mentioned, I think it's so important and so inspiring to anyone listening to show that you can really start. You know, from the ground up, and I think so many people that I've interacted with or see online, you know, have these big dreams, and they always say, you know. I I wish I could like make this happen, but I just don't have the resources or I don't have the time or I don't have the money. Right. And I think it's important to really prove to people that as long as you dedicate, you know, the small time or the small amount of money you do have to start something, 
and you have that passion for it, you can really make it work. So like you mentioned, you guys set out those two days a week where you would always meet and stay consistent to it. And you didn't have millions of dollars raised for to back the company up, but you built it from there and still made something out of it. So do you have any advice um, even further than what you already just provided through your example there for any you know, aspiring entrepreneurs who just need that a bit more like push of motivation to really just get started yeah. on their goals? I mean, I, one of my favorite quotes is like, you make time for what's important to you. I mean, you hear it a lot with like fitness, right? Like if you say you want to get fit or whatever, you care about your health, but you're not making the time to do your daily workout or, you know, it's not really important. Um, And similarly, that's how Laura and I approached our business. Um, When we first started, we, there was a lot of sacrifice. And I think a lot of people don't see that. Like, you know, I remember when we first started, it was the first really beautiful day in the summer. Uh, back when we were still hand making products and Laura and I had to stay inside all day making our first like large um, order for a thousand units for a PO. We were like, oh my gosh, this is massive. And all my friends and all of her friends were out on the patios being like, hey, come join us. It was so tempting. My friends had even been on a patio that was right down the street from where we were making oh products. Oh my gosh. And Laura and I were looking out the window being like, like looking at the sun and be like, this looks so nice while listening to our, how I built this podcast and like pressing our makeup wipes by hand. And it's, that's just like one small example of countless, like hundreds of times that we've had to make sacrifice. Um, so first advice for your listeners, if you really want to do something like quit the excuses. And I know um, like a lot of people might say like, yeah, well, it's easy for you to say, you know, you were like, I was born in Toronto. I already have a leg up over a lot of other people that are thinking of starting something. But if you're constantly going to be uh, like comparing yourself to people that are ahead of you, I just feel, you know, that's not like a positive mindset to have with starting something. Like just take ownership. Like I'm a really big believer in taking full ownership of your life. So if you really want to do something, then go all in. Like don't like half-ass it. Absolutely. That's my first piece piece of advice. Um, Second thing is um, with comparison. Comparison is something I really struggled with when I first started. Um, I would always compare myself to people that were ahead of me in their startup careers. Then once I quit my full-time job to do three shifts, I started to compare myself with my peers um, from work, like my nine to five that were starting to advance up the corporate ladder and be like, oh, like I'm not making any salary. Um, Or I would compare myself to brands that were like three years ahead of me. And so something that Laura and I did that really helped to put things into context was we looked at a brand that we thought was crushing it within the beauty space. And then we scrolled all the way back down to their first Insta post. Um, just to see how they started. And we were even able to find their first Etsy store. I don't know how we sleuthed and found it, but we scrolled back and Etsy had this way of going through order history where you could actually see what their packaging looked like when they first started. And this is a Sephora brand, okay? So like they're massive. And when they first started, they were brown craft paper, handmade. And it just really put things into context for us to be like, wow, you know, that's how they started. And like, we think that they're like the A plus brand, but at one point they were the brand that were just starting out. So that also helped a lot with the comparison mindset. Another thing to help out with new entrepreneurs is um, knowing that it's okay to ask for help. I feel like a lot of us think that, you know, we should know everything or because resources are so readily available online, like, and everything's so easy to find on Google, like we should be able to do it ourselves. And I think that's something that Laura and I, um, really had to get over. And luckily we both have really thick skin. So we asked our network for help. We would ask people like, do you happen to know a lawyer who can give us free advice? Do you happen to know like a packaging consultant who can give Mm. us free advice? Cause we only had $4,000. So we just really had to be mindful of where that went. Um, Another thing is also for new entrepreneurs, something that Laura and I are really passionate about is being um, an expert in sales. So if some of your listeners are even in high school or university, and you haven't even started a full-time job yet, I think um, getting some sales experience is crucial. So like I, you know, I worked at Club Monaco before, and then I went to sales full-time. Similarly, Laura also worked in sales and it just teaches you to negotiate, have really thick skin. And as a founder, you're constantly selling, like whether you're selling your product or your service or selling the vision of your company to future investors or employees, um, even like selling on a day-to-day my mission to myself because 
as an entrepreneur, there are so many ups and downs and you have to kind of be selling yourself your dream because yes. um, you, you're the only one who can push yourself forward. So sales is also a critical skill that I always tell young entrepreneurs to focus on. Um, and the last tip I have um, before we move on is if some of your listeners are starting a company with very little budget, I recommend looking into uh, government grants um, as well as um, some accelerators or grants from your university or college. Um, so when Laura and I first started, our first funding was $10,000 that we secured through competing in, ex in an accelerator that was part of Queen's University, which is my alumni school. Um, so we won a pitch competition. And with that $10,000, we went to a trade show in LA that we wouldn't have been able to afford. And that's how we first met the Whole Foods buyer. And now we're in all Whole Foods in North America. So it's like little things like yes. that that really add up. Um, so say yes to every opportunity pitch as much as you can. Mm -hmm. um, and I mean, pitching on Dragon's Den is I know something that we want to chat about. So like, get yourself out there as much as possible, because you never know what can happen. Absolutely. No, that's such a great th point that you bring up there. And I think, you know, that message you said there with stop making excuses, I think is the number one step that people need to start with. And then from there, understanding that it's going to take work and not comparing yourself because everyone started from somewhere. And um, a great example I like to think of is Dyson, for example, right? Like huge brand, but they went through, I think something like something crazy, like 7,000 iterations of their vacuum before they actually launched. Wow. So it's like, it doesn't, you know, even if they had, you know, industry connections and all this stuff, right? Or even look at, I don't know, the Kardashians who have connections in the industry. And if you look at their business history, they've had so many businesses that have flopped. Fail, yeah. Before they have had these very successful ones. And people look at them, they're like, well, of course their business is successful. They have a following, whatever. But it's like, no, it even them with like all that. these resources yeah. still like didn't make it through. So you have to be very resilient and have that tough skin before. And yeah, it's funny you mentioned Dyson because um, the former CEO of Dyson is now one of our investors. Oh, and wow. he led our um, our team through an offsite uh, like uh, presentation. And the presentation was all about failure. So it's really funny that you mentioned Dyson because they really lean into failure. Yeah. And he, he just talked through all their failures. Like at one point they wanted to do like a Dyson laundry machine that didn't work out and everyone laughed at them and then even when they got into hair care products people were like what are you doing mm -hmm. and um he was showing us photos of one of their labs um at dyson where like they just encourage failure they ask people right. like build something that you think is going to fail um and you never know what can happen from it another good exactly. example is like png i'm pretty sure how um the Swiffer started was they would always encourage their teams to like brainstorm wacky ideas. And so they got their team from like the pads and like tampons department to like mingle with their like, uh, I don't know, broom. Like there was some like cleaning yeah. supply, um, cleaning product uh, arm of PNG. And mm -hmm. then eventually someone took a broomstick and put a pad on it. And they were like, oh like this will soak up messes and that's, that's literally hilarious how that started so anyways like you literally never know how yeah. things can start absolutely there um yeah I guess you mentioned their dragons then I definitely want to deep dive into that and how that experience was I guess did you guys plan to kind of like sought out an experience like that what like were you wanting to go on Dragon's Den or did it just kind of come up as an opportunity that you all said yes to Dragon's Den has always been on Laura and my bucket list I remember growing up I would watch it and I remember thinking like I could never be on that show yeah. because it's so scary yeah and cutthroat <laughs> and, um, yeah it yeah. is super cutthroat and before you go on the show they actually make you sign away your rights um, so they make you sign a contract that says we reserve the right to embarrass you and make it seem like certain things happen when they didn't just like reality TV because yeah. it is reality TV. And so signing that and being like, okay, <laughs> we're just about to head into the den with a smile on our faces. That was a little daunting. Um, but we always knew we wanted to be on it because we knew that um, it's such a great um, propeller for brand awareness across Canada. Absolutely. So the way that the process works for those that are listening is you first start off with an audition process. So that's usually in February of each year. And the producers of the show will come to Toronto usually or across Canada. Um, and you'll just go up one by one and you'll pitch your business. And then uh, you don't really hear back for a couple of months. And then after that, you'll find out if you got a chance to pitch in the den or if they respectfully declined. Right. So uh, I think in July, we found out that we were going to be pitching in the den. Um, keep in mind, we this was during COVID. This was 2020 when we found out all of this. So the whole world was in disarray. And also my co-founder had just um, found out that she was diagnosed with, brain, with a brain tumor. So we can get right. into that. So things are very up in the air. 
so we went to the den and um, to prep for going into the den, we talked to probably five or six brands that had been on Dragon's Den in advance to get their advice. And a consistent piece of advice that we heard um, is uh, just make sure you're smiling the entire time because they can cut and splice clips to make it seem like, you know, maybe you were looking upset at one clip and they're going to cut cut that clip to make it seem like you're reacting negatively to a dragon saying they're not into the deal um, right. when in fact that didn't happen. So Laura and I just smiled the whole time just in case. That's like a number one piece of advice actually, which is pretty tactical and easy to do. Mm-hmm. Um, another thing that a lot of people don't realize is that you're actually in the den for close to an hour, even oh, though wow. the clips are cut down to a five or six yes. minute segment. Uh, so that's another whole reason to really <laughs> smile the whole time. <laughs> Um, another Your thing cheeks might have um, must have been like. Oh so yeah, <laughs> they were like up there and just so permanently. <laughs> Perma smile. Yeah. <laughs> um, another thing is also to just think about the fact that it's reality TV, so you have to make your pitch seem really enticing. Like we didn't, you know, we knew our products were great, yada yada yada, but we were thinking like, what is going to be a really show worthy angle? Mm-hmm. So we leaned into like, oh, we started with only four thousand dollars. Um, the week before the COVID lockdown, Laura went through a 10 hour brain surgery. Uh, you know, it was just the two of us in the business. And then we scaled the business to a couple of mil in like a couple of years. Like, so just whatever you think will be like exciting for them. Yes. Um, we use really big props. Um, so just make it really eye catching. And then the day of the taping, actually, we realized that hair and makeup was canceled that morning because of COVID. So the night before, Laura and I had to run to our local shoppers, Drug Mart, buy all the waterproof makeup that we could find and figure out TV makeup before we hopped into the den. So like, you just have to go with the punches. Um, And when you're actually in the den, there are so many cameras everywhere. It's like, there's cameras at every hole in the wall. There's lights everywhere. So you just have to let that not phase you. Yes. And actually what I would say about the dragons is they're actually really nice. Um, So when you go into the den, you walk in and then the producers say cut. And that's all you do. You literally walk in, you say, hello, dragons. And they say cut. And then you're like, okay. And then you go back and film it again because they need to have two clips of you walking into the den just in case one wasn't good. So I remember when Laura and I walked in, we were so nervous leading into it. We walked in, I almost slipped in my heels. Oh no. And then um, we said, and then they said cut. And Laura and I were awkwardly smiling. And I think one of the dragons like winked at us being like, you got this. Um, so just wanted to say also like they're really, they're people yes, at the end of the day. Exactly. Um, and after you get through your one minute pitch or however long um, your rehearsed pitches, it's just a conversation from that point on. And if you know your numbers and if you know your business, like they really can't phase you. So Laura and I just practiced so much yeah. um, for days on end that it actually was so authentic and it just flowed like you were talking to a friend. So that's my advice there. And after we were on Dragon's Den, our company just blew up. Like people were writing in saying that they found us while watching our episode on Air Canada flights. Like oh my gosh. we were on there for like a year. Actually, at one point, one of our team members was sitting next to someone mm-hmm. on a flight and she saw that he was watching us and she was taking a video be like, oh my God. It's wow. Us. Um, so, and like, you know, we were using, um, their clips in like, you know, blog posts and ads and things like that. So I think it's a really great awareness play. And if any of your listeners ever has questions about it, then you can always tell them they can DM us on Instagram. No, that's so amazing. And honestly, I'm like a shark tank and dragon then like addict. (laughs) I watch that all the time. It's so good. And, you know, I remember watching your episode and, um, I think one thing I definitely noticed was the confidence there and that you guys knew your facts because you do see some people come in and then they start getting asked questions about the business and then they're like, oh, I actually don't know. So I think that's a great piece of advice there and definitely yeah. didn't know about the the smiling, but totally makes sense. You know, you don't want to yeah. be put yeah, in a situation like where one of those like tips that you don't really think about but no. I feel like it makes such a difference another thing is you're saying like it sounds like people don't know their business and um one thing that we also purposely did is we reduced our valuation so we had already raised a pre-seed round before we went on Dragon's End and we yeah. knew that our company was valued at I think at the time the company was valued at seven million yeah. but um in the show we did our calculation so it was only valued at three um, yes. because we we're like you know what we don't want to give them a reason to laugh us out of the room even though we knew our company was worth more um right. so that's another piece of advice I would give to listeners that are pitching that's an amazing piece of advice because you know I always see people go in there and they're pitching like a million dollar valuation and then when they're asked about sales they're like oh we actually haven't 
Start yeah, pre it. pre revenue, and you're like, yeah. okay, like, where did you get this one million from? Yes, and that's where, the, and then they say, well, in a year we could be at one million. That's like, well, <laughs> you know. Yeah, so... and then that's when you know the dragons are checked out or the sharks are checked yes, out. <laughs> yes, and I think that's a great piece of advice. Even though you guys knew the value of your company and you had that confidence, you know, you're willing to prove it to them. And I guess the next thing you did go in there, you know, having that that evaluation and looking to give up some equity, but you walked out not actually giving up any equity, right? Yeah. So was Great that like, point. yeah, was that surprising to you? Were you expecting for that deal? We were not offered? expecting it. So for your listeners, um, we ended up getting four, four offers from three of the dragons. So two paired up to get, uh, mm. yeah, two paired up. Uh, so two were equity um, deals and one was actually, um, I'm blanking on the term. Uh, but royalty. pretty much he would take 2%. Yeah. Royalty yeah. 2%. Um, Jim said that he wanted to take 2% of our sales for five years. Uh, so we weren't expecting a royalty structure. And actually what happened on the show is they didn't show it in the clip, but what happened is we had the two offers that were equity deals. Laura and I went into a side room to chat about the offers and we already knew which one we were going to take. And then when we came back out, Jim was like, Hey, by the way, actually, I'd rather just like do a royalty structure for you guys. And we didn't even know that was on the table. And he was like, so what do you think? And then we looked at each other and we're like, okay, it's kind yeah. of a no brainer. Yeah. yeah. Um, so that's actually what ended up happening on the show. And they just cut out entire clips and they didn't even show us talking about the other two offers. Right. Um, and then after the show, when we were going through due diligence with Jim's team, we decided against taking the offer, which I think around like 80% of Dragon's Den and Shark Tank offers don't go through in due oh, diligence, wow. just as an FYI, um, because we were looking over the offer with some of our investors and our investors made a really good point. They were like, you know what, even though on surface or face level, it seems like a good um, deal. What you don't realize is when you're eventually raising future rounds, when you're bringing on new investors, they'll see that royalty structure as in like, oh, I'm putting, I'm giving you a hundred thousand dollars and 2% of that hundred thousand dollars is going straight into Jim's pocket. And so that was actually going to be limiting us in terms of the investors that we bring on in future rounds. And so what we did instead is we took the awareness that we got from Dragon's Den and kicked off our own seed round from that. And we actually oh, ended up closing okay. a round for 1.4 million in two weeks from angel wow. investors. Mm -hmm. And then we ended up telling Jim's team like respectfully, like we're going to have to turn down this offer. Yes. And, you know, we managed the relationship really well, like never burn bridges. And it's mm -hmm. funny because I actually saw Jim at Soho House in Toronto a few months ago and I approached him and his wife who were eating breakfast. And I was like, just wanted <laughs> to say like being on Dragon's Den completely changed our business. Yes. Thank you so much for the opportunity. And they actually remembered us and they were like, oh, like we're so happy to hear you're doing well, you know, so just know that like they, it's no hard feelings if you don't accept the offer after the show. That's awesome. No. And wow. Like as a, as like a super fan over here, I'm kind of like blown away by some of the things I didn't know. They're like, one, I didn't know that you actually have a chance to like go into a separate room to discuss. Cause that's one thing I always thought, like, I'm like, when there are partnerships or multiple people up there, I would feel like, can we like step out to talk about this? Yeah. But I didn't think that that was allowed. I thought you kind of had to do no. some like, telepathic communication. Yeah, you just look at each other. Like, <laughs> then you're like, okay. <laughs> like if I wink once, then yeah. yes. Um, well, so what Laura and I had done ahead of going to the den is we told each other, we're like, okay, if this dragon offers us this, like if Michelle offers us or like Arlena offers us, like we're going to say yes to these terms. Yes. Um, and then what they actually have is a room on the side. I think it used to be called like the Rat Pack room or something. But uh, Laura and I, we closed the door and we started whispering to each other, being like, okay, should we take this deal or this deal? And then we heard this like disembodied voice coming from the wall being like, talk louder. And we turn around and there's actually a camera that's fit through a hole in the wall. And there's this cameraman there. And he's like, you need to talk louder because we need to be able to pick up what you guys are discussing and right. Laura and I were like well we don't want the dragons to hear us and he was like no like these walls are um soundproof right. but we need to hear for tv, for the TV yeah. um and so it's funny so then we had to like repeat our conversation and same thing happened when we stepped out of that room and we were debating on the deals we were like uh we looked at each other really quick and we're like okay Jim we'll take your deal and then they stopped us and the producers were like can you just spend a little longer looking at each other like pretending like you're debating it and we're like okay so then that's why you see us like look at each other for a few minutes smiling awkwardly and we're like Okay, Jim, we'll take your deal. <laughs> um, so yeah, there's just it's TV. Yeah. And um and yeah, so I hope that gives like your audience a little more perspective into what actually happens. Wow. Um, but it was just such a fun experience. And also, final thing I'll say about Dragon's Den is you actually don't know if you're gonna be on air, even if you go into the den. Right. Um, so I think it was about 80 companies that ended up making it past auditions. Two thousand were on, um, in the auditions, 80 people, 80 companies got through to pitch in the den. Mm -hmm. And I think like around 50 or half of those companies wow. ended up making it on to season 15. Um, 
Um, so, and you don't actually know until a week before your episode airs. So the whole time we filmed it from July until October, we didn't know if we were going to make it. And then yes. a week before they were like, Hey, by the way, next week, your episode's airing. And you're like, um, Oh, okay. And- and we didn't know how they were going to cut and splice the episode mm-hmm. either. So the first time watching the episode live with the entire country um, was the first time Laura and I had seen the episode. Um, wow. So it was it was just like such a fun viewing party that we hosted for our friends. Uh, and yeah, it was just a big, big celebration. Did you guys tell anybody that you went on Dragon's Den or did you kind of keep it on the down yeah, low? Yeah, that's a good question. So they actually tell you that you're not allowed to tell people what happened um, in the den, but you can okay. tell people that you were, that you were pitching. So I told my then boyfriend, now husband, I was like, you know, it went well. Uh, Like, I mean, he dropped us off at the CBC studio downtown. And all I said was it went well. Uh, And then on the day of the episode airing, everyone finds out live. Right. Um, so yeah, there's like, you know, little ways you can get around and say like, you know, it, it was a fun time and mm-hmm. we were pleased with what happened. Um, but we weren't allowed to say if we got any offers. Right. And then, so another interesting thing that I had no idea about is that well, you said there, a lot of offers actually don't play out in the long term. I had no idea that that was actually a thing. I thought from, for the most part, you know, once the offer is made, that's kind of what what happens no so you have to go through due diligence afterwards Mm -hmm. and so their teams will go through your financials with you because if not then a company could just go on and be like i sell 10 10 million dollars of course yeah Uh, so that's why a lot of uh deals don't go through and then another reason why they don't go through is a lot of companies will just go on for the free pr uh so it's like you know it's a it's a win-win on both ends where the dragons get you know some good deals and good Mm -hmm early equity and companies are going to like completely be rock stars. And then on the other hand, there's these founders that can use a free PR and then grow their businesses. So yeah, I think it's a very symbiotic relationship. (laughs) Right. Were you going in, I guess, yeah, coming out of it, you were offered like no equity um, being taken out, but going in, did you expect to actually have to give up more equity than you originally pitched? Yeah, that's a great question. So we weren't going to accept an offer for, um, evaluation that was worse than what we provided, aka giving up more equity. Um, but we were super actually open to getting an equity offer. And mm-hmm. Laura and I were actually debating um, bringing on a dragon as a real investor. Uh, and then when Jim gave us a royalty structure, we're like, oh, this is like a no brainer. Um, and we were really like deep in due diligence with his team to make it happen. Um, but, you know, in retrospect, I'm glad with the way that things panned out right. because we ended up opening our round to so many more angel investors with strategic guidance, like the Dyson CEO mm-hmm. um, and so many more people. So I, I'm glad with how things shook out. Uh, but yeah, it was such a fun experience and I, I'm so grateful that I was able to cross that off the bucket list. Right, right. No, that's so awesome. And uh, wow, that's that's so much right there that I had no idea as like a super fan of these shows. You just get the inside scoop and I'm sure that was really interesting for anyone listening as well so okay I want to kind of switch gears here um I want to ask you a little bit about your thoughts about like the current beauty industry and with that as well as like the current beauty standards as well what your thoughts are on it yeah it's such a complicated question to break down like on one hand I feel that the beauty industry has become really inclusive or a lot more inclusive a lot more diversity there's Mm. less ageism you know you're seeing older models and products for people who are older and celebrating like all different ethnicities and I love that um but on the other hand I feel like beauty standards are just so impossible nowadays like with AI filters that you can use and like TikTok filters and like luckily you know I'm 29 now and I feel like I'm definitely less influenced than I was like in my early 20s Mm -hmm. but like I feel bad for the people who are growing up in today's day and age of social media like it's just impossible and I just my heart hurts for the boys and girls who are growing up and seeing these impossible beauty standards and these this impossible airbrush skin and like face tune mm-hmm. and like oh my gosh like I don't know what this next generation is gonna be like um when they grow up and that scares me um so on on one hand I think that it's great that we're embracing yes. imperfection and flaws and and different ethnicities but on the other hand I feel like there's so much more room that needs to change um yes. in the beauty industry and then another I guess a hot take on the beauty industry is uh, when it comes to inclusivity and, you know, we're a skincare brand, we don't have color products, AKA Mm -hmm. like uh, makeup, 
Mm -hmm. Uh, But I think that sometimes as a new brand, you can get a lot of flack for not having inclusivity when it comes to your range. Um, So let's just say you're starting a new foundation brand. Like if you don't have 50 plus shades, you can get in a lot of trouble. But I think what a lot of consumers don't realize is there's such thing as minimum order quantities or MOQs. And when you're starting at a brand, especially if you only have a couple thousand dollars, you just cannot do that no like, you can't create that many skews yeah for everyone and same thing with sizes like this is something I just I feel really bad for new founders of clothing brands that they have like small medium large maybe mm-hmm. and already like inventory demand planning is so hard getting the minimum order quantities is so hard right. and I think that we could just be a little more compassionate with each other um, both on the consumer side and also as a brand side for understanding that everyone is doing the best they can exactly and this is just yeah. something that I just I feel really passionate about because I have so many founder friends in the beauty industry and they're constantly telling me how hard it is um, when it comes to shade inclusivity and diversity and size ranges. And as a skincare founder, I'm just not in that world. And I'm really Mm. grateful that we don't really have that as a problem. Right. Um, So yeah, I just want to say like for any of your listeners who are consumers in the space, just remember that um, if founders could, I think they would have yes. 50 to hundred plus shades, but it's just really hard when you start. Oh, absolutely. And I think, you know, rightfully so people should kind of more slam down and focus on those huge corporations who right. maybe aren't meeting those and coming out with like five shades. Cause at, at that point it's like, well, you know, we could have done yeah, a bit better you, with that you shade. Should, right? Yeah. And you, when you're you have the resources. That exactly but definitely for someone on the smaller end it should kind of be taken into perspective you know where that company is at for sure so building off of that what are your goals with three shifts not only you know as a skincare um brand that is definitely doing really well in this competitive and insane industry but what are your plans and goals with three ships to kind of push those boundaries of beauty standards a bit more and push the industry in maybe a more positive direction yeah. So our goal has always been to be the most effective um, and accessibly priced natural beauty brand on the yes. planet. Um, and I, what, one thing that we really care about pushing forward is efficacy when it comes to natural. And there's this huge misconception in the market or in the consumers that natural doesn't work as well as synthetic. Right. And that's really what we're here to disprove. Like we use clinically tested actives. I think around seven or eight of the products in our product line of 23 SKUs um, Mm -hmm. are clinically tested themselves. And that's really rare. Like it's really hard to find a natural product that is clinically tested for sensitive skin and hypoallergenic. So I think that's like the number one thing we focus on. And that's one of the biggest ways that we're moving the beauty industry forward. We're also calling out the lack of transparency in the beauty industry. A lot of brands will hide behind jargon and, you know, misleading terms and like putting an orange on the front of their label and calling it a vitamin C serum when vitamin C is the very last ingredient in the ingredient list. So we really are trying to be the industry leaders here. Mm -hmm. We have an ingredient glossary where we list every single ingredient we use, including where it's sourced from and any scientific studies that we have for that ingredient versus most brands either don't have a glossary or if they do, it's like a dirty six list or something where it's like, oh, we'll never use, you know, um, phenexiethanol. Um, but they don't really talk about what they do use, or yeah. if they do talk about what they use, it's just hero ingredients. It's yes. not every ingredient. Um, we also have a supply chain sourcing map on every product page. So oh, consumers wow. can actually drag around this map and see where every ingredient came from. We have our supplier code of conduct live on our side. So people can see like that we abide by safe standards, uh, ethical labor practices. Mm-hmm. We're one of only 102 skincare brands globally that are B Corp certified. Um, wow. So I think these are some ways that we're trying to push the industry forward. Um, and another Another thing is we really embrace like all different ages, all different genders and ethnicities. Um, and so you see this in like model imagery on our site. We don't use like airbrushing on people's mm-hmm. skin. We have models that are men. We have models that are 60 plus. Like, just like, I think that those are little ways that you can push the industry forward. Yes. Um, so yeah, I'm just really passionate about transparency in the beauty industry because surprisingly, there's just no legal definition for natural no. uh, in the beauty space, which is crazy to think yes. about. Um, so we're, we're really big proponents of um, just like more transparency uh, in the beauty industry. And our long-term goal is to expand beyond just facial skincare and wow. get into categories like body care, color cosmetics, nice. hair care. Um, and so starting off with skincare, but one category at a time. Nice. That's so awesome to hear. Well, I'm so excited to see the brand, you know, expand and come out with some more of those categories. I'll definitely be looking into that in the future. And I have to say with what you defined as like that loose term with natural, um, I get so many emails from brands on a daily basis saying we are, you know, 100% natural, chemical free. And I'm like, well, 
technically like you're not you know I'm looking at your ingredients right now yeah. and everything's a chemical even if it's natural right. it's still a chemical by like nature and um when you guys emailed me at first like years ago I just saw like natural and usually it's very like loose terms so I kind of skimmed over it but then when I did look into the brand I'm like oh like you know these products yes they're natural ingredients but they're also effective at the same time so that definitely made your brand stand out to me versus all the yeah. other thousands I, I come across that are just pushing natural and clean when there's no real definition and that's why it. we define natural um, as being 100% plant and mineral derived yes um, so then that way because I feel like there's some people that think that you know there's some definitions of natural where it's in its purest state, like you can't even alter it. But for us, we actually think that some ingredients work better when yes. you actually process them. Um, so that's why we make it really clear what mm -hmm. our standards are. And when you talk about efficacy, that's why we focus on the intersection of three main pillars. It's natural, effective, and affordable. And yes. I think a lot of brands will focus on one or maybe two of them. So like some brands will be natural and effective, but then they're like $300 for a product. So they're not affordable. Absolutely. Or you'll have brands that are effective and affordable, but then they're not plant-based. And I'm not saying that natural is better than synthetic. I'm just saying that if you do choose to use natural, you should be able to trust that the brand you're using is actually natural. Mm -hmm. um, so I think there's a really big difference there. I'm not into fear mongering. I hate brands that will like scare you into using their products. Yes. And I also dislike brands that make you scared that if you switch away from their line or if you don't use their entire line, then your skin is going to yes. break out like crazy or you're not going to get the results. Like right. I think one of the beautiful parts of the beauty industry is you can have one sunscreen from Supergroup that you love and then you can have a bio retinol from three ships and mm -hmm. then you can have like you know like a like an ilia serum and like all of them are great and you can yeah. use them together um so I just think that beauty there's so many things that would change about the industry and I'm just one person yes um but I do believe that our mission of being the most effective natural beauty brand in the world, it, it's happening. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm just so grateful for people like you and your audience and our consumers for believing in us and trusting mm -hmm. us and voting with your dollars um, to help us um, fight these bigger companies that just are, are, to be honest, misleading consumers. Absolutely, Connie. And you know, you guys are one brand, but I'm sure your impact is really making a difference on the beauty industry and I I can't wait to see where where the brand goes next and it was so amazing talking to you thank you so much for your time today and giving me the inside scoop on Dragon's End that was <laughs> so awesome and also your amazing advice to any of the young you know um future entrepreneurs out there just like take that leap and you know you can you can do it no matter what what stage you're at um you know how many funds or time you have whatever dream you have you can definitely go ahead and do that so yeah thank you so much Connie I really appreciate your time today for anyone listening you can go check out the podcast on Spotify Apple and on YouTube for the video version we post every single Sunday morning thank you so much for getting loud with me and Connie today and you will hear from me in the next episode of loud talk with Lavi bye everyone thank you bye